This is the ZMAR Podcast. Elite Benefits of America helps small and mid-sized companies with their health insurance programs. And now, your host, Butch ZMAR. Today, I'm going to start off with a scuba story that will lead into something to do with the great resonation that employers are facing with. And I think um, at least the, the story might be entertaining to some, but there's definitely some lessons involved and maybe some things that people didn't know about scuba diving. We were on the East Coast, shipwreck dive, a little that, similar to a cabin cruiser. It was a little bit bigger. It was probably... 60 to 80 feet in the sand it's i mean we're going back almost 20 years ago since i did this dive so forgive my memory and i didn't look up the my dive log most scuba divers keep a dive log and i didn't have a chance to look up to see if i could find the shipwreck but it's between 60 and 80 feet to the sand Uh, most of the the bottom on the east coast was all sand and in some cases it would be like muck or mud or, or clay but most of the time it was some element of sand so we were leaving the Virginia Beach area and heading out when it was past the Chesapeake Light Tower. And during the, the ride out, we kind of prep for the dive, make sure all our equipment's together, make sure it's uh, locked and loaded. Uh, if there's anything extra like flashlights or in some cases a dive knife, which we hardly ever use, or cameras um, is a big one. We make sure those are all ready to go and make sure they're properly stored so they don't uh, go flying when you hit waves because um, obviously you're in the ocean. Uh, waves keep bouncing around, so things move on the boat. We finally get to the scuba spot, and they link up to a mooring line. It's a uh, shipwreck that was obviously already been dove, so a lot of times they anchor a line already attached to it so that dive boats could just attach to the line, make it easy, instead of having to drop anchor and hook to the bottom of the ocean every single time. Uh, it just makes it a lot easier, whereas some of the deeper shipwrecks, they can't get mooring lines on. So they'll drop this, you know, 200-foot line over to the side, and, and the the boat will move around and try to hook the shipwreck. And uh, it's quite a procedure and uh, interesting to watch at times, especially when they keep missing it until they grab it. And then uh, and then going down, they try to find out, uh, um, you know, where it got hooked. But anyhow, so um, we're all ready to go. We put our gear on, and... Um, and the most common entry is a giant stride entry into the ocean. Uh, it's just one big step out, grabbing all your gear and putting it to your chest and, and jump. Um, it's not a hop, it's just a big, huge step. And then we ease our way down to the shipwreck. Uh, you don't want to drop like a rock when you go scuba diving. It's, it's fun to do that in the pool, to try to drop down to the bottom of the pool. But in the open water, it's almost like gravity um, takes into place. And then uh, at a certain point when there's not enough air in your buoyancy control device that helps keep you either you know neutrally buoyant or at the surface like a flotation device once that collapsed to a certain level all of a sudden you just drop like a rock and so um but you want to make sure you go down easy and letting out enough air and then at some point you're going to start adding air because you will be dropping pretty fast and so on the way down you just start adjusting that's usually addressed in the scuba class so when we finally approached the shipwreck it's actually sitting in the sand it was slightly on an angle um and but it was still upright uh i don't know or remember the actual backstory how it was there my guess it was some storm it was a private boat out in the middle of the ocean and uh it just kind of sunk and then the owners probably went on there and salvaged whatever they could and they left the shipwreck behind for people to see so we're swimming around it 
the temperatures at you know 60 to 80 feet in this area is probably close to 60 degrees depending on the time of the year 60 degrees in the water is a little bit different than air temperatures uh, but um, 60 degrees is still warm compared to where it could be uh, because some of the deeper temperatures and and the beginning of the season and later in the season it could actually drop to about 50 and so it gets a little chilly especially when when you get into the upper 40s it, it definitely is quite cold if you dive in the midwest temperatures could actually even in the middle of july at certain depths could be actually 32 uh, to 38 degrees it's definitely could get quite chilly so the 60 degrees is quite warm it's not like the Caribbean at uh, 80 to 90, but uh, I'll take it. It's good shipwreck diving uh, at that temperature. Uh, the visibility was about probably 30 feet. This is where you could actually see out in front of you how far and in front of you you could see. Some people joke where they add up all the directions. So if you look to your left, your right, up and down, that's four directions. So 30 times four is 120 feet. But in some cases, the visibility could actually be limited. Lake Michigan, that's in our backyard. I've been in Lake Michigan when it's been two inches of visibility, and I've been in Lake Michigan when it's been 200 foot of visibility. 200 foot is actually quite rare, but um, it does occur. And then on average, it's probably 30 to 40 feet typically. But some people are like, well, you can't see that much in that. And so that's why they scuba dive in the Caribbean. And that's fine because everybody has different personalities, but uh, there's a lot of great shipwrecks in lower visibility. So if those who like uh, shipwrecks. Um, that's the place to be. Colder temperatures preserve shipwrecks a little bit better. And then obviously fresh water is even better because the salt eats away at a lot of the shipwrecks in the ocean. The 30 foot of visibility was great to actually try to see around. So as we're moving around, um, one thing I want to point out on the back end of the ship is, or the wreck, should I say, it's not a ship, it's just like a big huge boat, is usually the name. So if you go to any boat harbor, you'll see the back end of most of the boats there that uh, you'll see the, the name of the boat that was either identified by the manufacturer or the owner of the boat. And so when we were scuba diving, it was a little blurry to make it out, the name. And, um, and you could see some of the letters, but you couldn't make out what the word was, or in some cases, some of the letters just weren't completely clear. A lot of times when we dive shipwrecks, the name of the shipwreck is important in this case um, we were just having fun but in other shipwrecks when we were diving world war ii shipwrecks on the east coast a lot it's really cool to uh, find out the names of what um, you're scuba diving on either in advance or even afterwards and then there's a lot of data obviously online when i was doing a lot of these shipwreck dives out there um, google was still in its infancy so blogs had very limited information there's actually one blog from that era that I'm listed as one of the dive crew on a big, huge, deep shipwreck dive that they were doing. Uh, one was a 380-foot dive, and, and I forget the other one. I think it was 520, um, but I didn't go that deep. But um, but it, this was back when blogs were still a little bit new. But now that there's a whole bunch of data, you could probably get pictures and images for almost everything out there um, that people have seen. We're just kind of cruising along on the ship. And just kind of checking things out, uh, seeing what's there, what's not there. Sometimes we actually see fish swimming around. And yes, occasionally in the ocean, we do see sharks. Sharks really don't want anything to do with you. As soon as they sense presence, they usually get out of dodge. Some of the more curious ones will come by. But as long as you don't provoke it or bother it, it should be fine. 
Also, when we dive, especially in clearer waters like oceans, freshwater, you could do see it a little bit. Freshwater is a little bit darker at times, depending on where you're at. Um, but there's layers of thermocline or temperature changes. So sometimes you could actually see the lines where temperatures change. In some cases, you could actually feel it. So if you're hovering around the thermocline, uh, you could be colder in some spots and warmer in other spots. Um, it's quite of a good science project, but... Uh, um, but we saw thermoclines, but uh, again, we couldn't see the letters on the back of the boat. We swim around, we have our fun, and then we exit the dive. We make a slow ascent back to the surface. We go slow. We cannot go fast. The air is going to expand in our vest, so we have to make sure we release some of the air. We have to avoid what's called the bends, so we have to be care- careful, including doing a safety stop, usually between 15 and 20 feet. In the open ocean, we usually do deeper to 20 feet, only because of rocky waves at the surface. But some of the on dive or scuba boats that we use out there, and anywhere in the world for that matter, usually has a line that hangs over. And it could be 15 feet, but at least um, with the line hanging over, it has a PVC pipe. It's like a big hang line used for acrobats, and some scuba divers will have fun with it. But it could be between 15 and 20 feet. So we hung out there for a little bit. Uh, usually three to five minutes is fine. We I, I do recall a lot of our scuba dives on the East Coast that we were we extended those for safety measures. So we were probably there between fifteen and um, fifteen and twenty minutes in some cases, depending on how much air we had. So later on, uh, I remember it was a few days later. It wasn't exactly. It was it could have been a week later on the following weekend. We were doing a little bit of debriefing about the dive. It was nothing big, so there was nothing really to go over other than. Some of the things some people saw versus others. By this time, we had a, a copy of the video. And so when we were watching the video, the clarity of the video was far better than what our memory was. As we were watching it, all of a sudden we could realize that we could actually see the name of the boat on the video, but we could not see it when we were scuba diving. And so in scuba diving, we have this thing called narcosis. And so narcosis is similar to drinking. But in drinking, we can't compare the comparison between the vision other than maybe in a textbook. And so by watching the video shortly after the dive, you could actually compare the vision of what you remember it to be and what most people that you were scuba diving with could agree with. And then watching it from the video, it was night and day difference. You could clearly see the name of the shipwreck. I don't remember what it was right now, but, but it was definitely much clearer. The letters were there. It was almost to the point where we didn't understand why we couldn't see the letters to begin with. But obviously the video camera wasn't breathing air, so it functions differently through a lens. Tying this back to employee benefits, a lot of employers have blurred vision, not necessarily because of narcosis, but it could be in some cases. But uh, uh, in most cases, it's because that's the only visual we ever see. And so most people don't have video cameras. There's more and more. It's more and more common today because technology has advanced so much that um, the cost of video cameras that go on underwater have drastically reduced than the, compared to 25, 30 years ago. But most employers are operating without this video camera to actually see what else is there and what, how much deeper can they go and the clarity of it all. And so right now, employers are facing this great resonation, which is a huge issue for a lot of employers. A lot of these employees that are moving are looking for more opportunities, more flexibility in schedules or working remotely, especially with COVID. 
some employers are still demanding that they come into the office versus working remotely. And in some cases, I think employers need to demand this to a certain degree because employees are more productive in the office versus at home. But I do think COVID taught a lot of employees how to operate more productively at home. So an employer could actually do a good job by putting together a training program of how they could uh, operate a little bit more efficient. There's plenty of them out there. If you employers that are listening to this, if they need resources for that, I have them. There's definitely better ways to do it. So the other reason that employees leave is due to compensation packages and benefits. Employers are having a hard time with the compensation uh, side of things because of inflation and controlling costs in the workplace, as well as what they sell their products and services for. And so it becomes a a, a huge giant stride, so to speak, to try to figure out what um, is the best way. So what I, my encouragement with employers that we, we communicate with is it's hard to keep up with the wages, but you need to find the cash. And so one place to look that maybe you haven't looked because of blurred vision is uh, the benefits package. In most cases, your current broker isn't helping you reverse the trend. Um, maybe they have. Um, we're finding some employers are getting exposed to other product lines that that we would recommend and, and the industry's moving to has been for many years. So it's nothing new. But um, a lot of brokers stick with the status quo, the, the big names, the branded names, the ones on the billboard, the one that makes you feel warm and fuzzy inside your wallet, having the logo. And I'm not saying not having a logo is a bad deal. There's so much more opportunity out there. And the reference that I always continue to keep making is if the paper that you purchase for your employees, um, the print paper, had doubled in a year or gradually went up and doubled over five years, you would eventually shop. And if you compared only two vendors of paper, you would never be able to figure out opportunities to save money. So why would you do it with anything else? You do it with everything else in the workplace um, for cost containment. Why don't we do it for benefits? And that's the issue that we always run into. It's kind of like if everybody, anybody's ever heard that, that's that story where the dog's whining on the front porch and uh, uh, the owner goes out, try to figure out what happened. And the dog laid down on the porch and he laid down on the nail and uh, the nail uh, obviously is causing pain, but the pain, he's howling because of the pain, but um, the dog doesn't move. And so it's the same thing here where we're stepping on this nail, we're yelling that there's pain, but we're not doing anything about it. And so in most cases, your brokers are doing the same thing. And the big shops out there, so some of these employers want to go to a big shop because they have more people, they have more resources, you know, they're never going to go away, all this stuff. Whereas some of these smaller shops, um, they're one heartbeat away from being out of business in some cases, but there are still good people out there and they're trying to do good things for employers. And these big shops, they have financial incentive to keep you with those carriers. Um, They're actually being financially incentivized not to help you save money. They'll never admit to it. Now, part of a recent act that was signed at the federal level where our compensation has to be disclosed to the employer. The problem is, is that especially at that big of a level, uh, you could actually just put down commission models, not specific to your actual company. And so you have to do the math. Well, no one's going to sit there and try to figure out the math that you get a $100,000 bonus if you keep them with the same carrier. 
they're just not going to see it. They just don't do the same. It's the CFOs don't do the same math um, every single day. Now, if the CFO is interested, he could certainly figure it out or she could figure it out. But I'm just saying that they're just putting down commission models that you have to compute them the formula in order to figure out how much they're making and then you never know so it's just a sidestep to avoid the what the actual truth of what they're making off your policy and then what you're getting for it i'm just trying to point out that in a lot of cases they're financially incentivized not to move you to a better opportunity for you um because if they keep you there it's a better opportunity for them but not all insurance brokers are evil sometimes it's just the way the cookie um crumbles or where the deck of cards fall, depending on what analogy you want to use, because we have employers that are 50 to 100 employees and they have high, high, high risk. And so we can't move them, unfortunately, but we can start implementing strategies to help lower that cost. And there's definitely divide and conquer that occurs in those groups in order to save, because if there is a way that you could divide and conquer and save tens of thousands a year, if not even more depending on the size of the company, it could be actually be hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I know some of my colleagues in the industry that are working in this angle to help um, reverse the trend and some of the larger employers, they're saving millions of dollars a year, millions, right? What does that do to the bottom line? And obviously the whole point of bringing all this up is that you could actually figure out where the cash is to compensate these employees, right? So if you're not doing the things you should be doing, then you should look at these opportunities to release some of that cash, provide actually better benefits uh, to your employees to be able to leverage the capital to keep employees longer, as well as attract the new ones that have talent so that you could move into a positive direction and growth and create more opportunity for employees. Hey gang, ever wonder what it's like to be a small business owner? It's confusing, weird expenses coming out of nowhere, and when you throw in health insurance, forget it. Nobody understands how that works. If you own a business, big or small, it's one of the biggest expenses you have all year long. And yet, we all wait until open enrollment at the end of the year, and then we think to ourselves, next year, next year I'll get a jump on it. And then it's another year of paying way too much. If you're a business owner, big or small, HR representative that wants to impress the boss, Give Butch Zemar of Elite Benefits of America a call. Save yourself or your boss thousands or even tens of thousands of dollars a year. Reach out to Butch right now, 708-535-3006, or shoot him an email, butch at elitebenefits.net. And be sure to check out the Zemar podcast. Don't wait till the last minute. Put Butch Zemar to work for you now. So experiencing uh, narcosis with um, benefit costs, um, it's kind of similar, right? I should probably trademark that name before somebody else takes it. But uh, you just can't see the big clear picture because you're so used to the same lens. It's like having beer goggles, I guess. And so we have to change the lens of the video camera you're using when it comes to benefits. And there are obviously several ways you could do this it could th- through technology. There are so many ways you could cut costs, administrative costs. Some of that's not visible right away, but over time, you'll see a ROI on it. The biggest one is cost containment. So again, you would not shop to the same two vendors for paper supply if you were getting 30% increases every year. You just wouldn't do it. You would find another source. There's so many sources for paper. There's probably a limited number of outlets for health insurance. 
but a lot more than two. And so um, instead of bouncing back and forth between two or three insurance companies, you can look for different opportunities to control that cost. There's so many different ways, especially when I say larger companies, when you get up to 20, 25 employees, it really opens up the door to a whole bunch of other options. Um, probably even in some cases a lot more than paper supply at that level, but just depending on what your goal is and then what your employee base looks like and how many people are actually going to enroll. Another thing is you could create incentives for your employees to make better outcomes of their health care. There's programs that you can implement can be little or no cost, or you would pay a fee per employee for uh, to reduce the health care spend on the health insurance to reduce costs in the long term. And then compliance is obviously a long-term cost savings for future costs in case you have compliance issues. But those are obviously ways that you can pull capital out of a program that you could reverse it and put it right back into wages so you could get these employees to come back or recruit new ones that have talent that you're looking for. Mm -hmm.